Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 130 for February 15th, 2009. The CS4 version of Adobe Illustrator finally has what is probably the number one feature that designers have been clamoring for, the ability to create multiple pages. Adobe calls them multiple artboards in a single file. Every other competing program, from CorelDRAW to Macromedia Freehand, had this feature years ago, and Illustrator in many ways was and also ran in the product category. Well, no more. The Creative Suite 3 version of Adobe Illustrator saw significant advances, and in Creative Suite 4, Adobe really turned on the afterburners. To familiarize myself with some of the new features, I watched a 90-minute lynda.com presentation by Morty Golding. Golding is a production artist for print and the web. He's also an Adobe Certified Expert and Adobe Certified Print Specialist, and he worked for Adobe as the Product Manager for Illustrator 10 and Illustrator CS. Morty repeatedly used the terms at last and finally in describing features that have been added to or improved in Illustrator CS4. Now that, that says something about Adobe. What it says about Adobe is that the company is humble, and I mean that in the most possibly positive way. I've been impressed by this attitude every time I've worked with any product manager from Adobe. Praise is met with thanks, of course, but so is a complaint. Say that something is missing or improperly implemented, and the response will be along the lines of, Oh, really? Tell me more. Somebody at Adobe must be a proponent of the philosophy that when somebody takes the time to complain, you should listen. I like that in a company because it leads to better products, and Illustrator is a great example. If you've listened to TechBiter Worldwide and before that technology corner, you may already know that I've been a big fan of CorelDRAW since the time I saw the first version of the program sometime in the early 1980s in the Hilton on 6th Avenue in New York City. I haven't been particularly kind to some of the Adobe products, and particularly to Illustrator over the years, so you might perceive a changed attitude this time around. Corel, of course, has been good about adding new features, and lately it's been spending a lot more time on usability and reliability. Adobe, on the other hand, has tended to concentrate on reliability at the cost of a rich feature set. This time around, the features are there, but it's still a reliable application. As we meander through this review, I'd like you to keep one thing in mind, and that is I am not a designer. When I do a graphic design, I try to follow the basic rules that keep me from going too far off the rails and producing something unspeakably ugly. But designer is not exactly an appropriate description for me. Instead of providing just the ability to create multiple pages, Illustrator provides for multiple artboards, and this isn't just a semantic difference. Applications that allow the user to create multiple pages may require that all the pages be the same size. The current version of CorelDRAW, for example, creates pages that are all the same size, but it does allow the user to change them individually. 
Adobe's artboards start out the same size and they appear on a single large workspace. The user can then resize the artboards and move them around any way that they want on that workspace. When you print or export the work, each individual artboard is treated individually. But if you want to print all of the elements, maybe a letterhead, an envelope, and a business card, all on a single page, you can do that with ease. And that's the beauty of multiple artboards on a single work surface. Illustrator is often used to create files that will be used in a page layout application such as InDesign. But these files may often simply be sent to a print shop for production, too. If that's the case, the designer may need to anticipate a bleed. Printing presses can't print all the way to the edge of a piece of paper. So the designer must design inside a safe area that's slightly smaller than the page that will be printed. It will then be trimmed. What prints outside the trim lines is where the design bleeds. In previous versions of Illustrator, the designer could finesse the bleed area, but now an in-design feature has been added to Illustrator, and bleed is a lot simpler. When you drag an element around on the page, your objective is probably to align that object with some other object on the page. So, as you move an object, Illustrator watches for other objects on the page and displays a green line that shows you when the object you're moving is aligned to top, bottom, left, right, or center with another object on the page. You don't like green lines? Fine. You can change the color. Smart guides can be distracting, so Adobe limits the extent to which they're visible and also allows the user to specify exactly which components of the alignment tools are visible. In previous versions, the brush tool has been a problem in Illustrator, even with a digitizing tablet. You could draw what appeared to be a single object, but what you actually had was a series of lines. There was a stroke, but no fill, despite what your eyes told you. So Adobe's answer is the blob brush. Yeah, the blob brush. Any object you draw with the blob brush is exactly what it appears to be, a single object with a stroke and a fill. If you have experience with earlier versions of Illustrator, you'll understand just how important that enhancement is. If not, just take my word for it. This is really big. Gradients, when a color changes in stages from one shade to another or from one entire color to another color, can improve the realism of an object, but they have been difficult to work with until now. The user would see a dialog box that would show colors and midpoints, but not the rotation of the effect. If you had rotated the effect, you had to kind of imagine that until you applied it. In other words, even if the gradient in the artwork was vertical, what you'd see in the dialog box was horizontal. Well, now you get a live edit widget on the actual object that you're modifying. The widget not only displays how the gradient works, but also allows you to edit in real time. Adobe understands that none of us is as smart as all of us. So all of the CS4 applications have built-in help that uses technology licensed from Google to search Adobe resources, as well as resources from other providers such as lynda.com, Layers Magazine, Digital Media Net, Photoshop Gurus, InDesign Secrets, All Experts, Peach Pit Press, and a lot of others. Some of the links from the online help section lead directly to videos on the Adobe website videos that have been licensed from various providers so that they're available to users without charge. This may be the future of help. Bottom line for Illustrator CS4, well, finally earns a wow for me. The improvements are immense, but now I can't wait to see what's coming in CS5. 
Illustrator has been for too long the weakest application in Adobe's stable. With CS4, it's more than just a contender. Now it's a standout. If you'd like more information, there is a link to the Adobe Illustrator website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And by the way, this is kind of a word to the wise. If you use an Illustrator-type program, whether it's Illustrator or whether it's CorelDRAW, or if you use a photo editing program, Photoshop or any of the other applications, get a pen. Would you try to draw something by sticking a pencil into a bar of soap? I suspect your answer to that would be no. But that's essentially what you're doing if you try to use a mouse with an application such as Illustrator or Photoshop. Those who spend any significant amount of time with these kinds of applications would be very well served by acquiring a digitizing tablet. Wacom, probably as the best-known manufacturer, has models ranging in price from around $100 to about $2,000. The low-cost models are relatively small, but I can work better most of the time with a small tablet. The high-cost models include a digitizing tablet on top of an LCD screen. So if you're a pro, the feedback you get from that setup is really outstanding. Every time there's a new version of Opera, I download it, install it, marvel at its size, admire it, and then stop using it after a week or so. I always go back to Firefox. And it's not so much about how good Firefox is, because Firefox has no shortage of annoyances, but it's about how extensible Firefox is. A dozen or so add-ons make Firefox exactly what I want it to be. Opera has add-ons too, but its user base is so small that the number of add-ons is also quite small. Still, I keep Opera on my computer because it's free and because I like the browser's adherence to standards. When others were just talking about standards, Opera was developing a browser that actually abided by the standards. Now the other browsers have all caught up to that, but Opera still finds a space in a niche market. Despite a good selection of useful features, Opera seems to be unable to develop much of a market. That's really not too surprising because marketers know that any given market segment will usually have at most two big dogs. Coke and Pepsi in soft drinks. RC comes in a distant third. Hamburgers, well, McDonald's and Burger King. If you think of bleach, Clorox probably comes to mind. Despite losing significant market share to Firefox, Microsoft's Internet Explorer is still number one, followed by Firefox. And after that, everybody is and also ran. But Opera has fans for good reason. Here's an example. I know what the TechBiter Worldwide website looks like on a full-size screen. But I also know that iPhones and other mobile devices are becoming increasingly popular. I know that design decisions I've made are supposed to convert reasonably well to the small screen, but Opera helps me see the results. Opera makes browsers that are used in some mobile devices, so it's easy for the company to include a small screen option in the menu. Then I can see exactly what the TechBiter Worldwide website would look like on, oh, say for example, an iPhone. But I mentioned add-ons and how weak they are. Opera, by the way, calls them widgets. It's certainly not Opera's fault, but the lack of useful widgets is certainly not helping Opera's marketing. For example, I asked Opera to show me the most popular widgets. Sim Aquarium, Weather, a Clock, a Google Toolbar, a Video Downloader, 
and one called Stay Secure that might suggest to you that it's going to help keep your computer secure. It doesn't. All it really does is report the most recent security status of primary browsers. Well, the weather widget might be useful. Then I went back and asked for the highest rated widgets. Weather, Sim Aquarium, and the clock were all back, along with the useless security widget and a circular game of Tetris. These are the most popular widgets. Well, then I tried going to the utility section and selected web developer widgets. So here's the Google toolbar, the video downloader again. Actually, two video downloaders. Another widget shows IP addresses. Gee, those are so hard to find. There's a bare-bones HTML editor and a ruler. As much as Firefox's add-ons help build Firefox's market share, Opera's widgets probably work against its success. But it's not all bleak. Opera has placed several useful settings on a menu that's very easy to reach. You can set Opera to block unwanted pop-ups, but you might want to block all pop-ups on some sites, or on other sites you might want to allow all pop-ups. The same menu allows you to enable or disable animated images, sound, Java, JavaScript, plugins, and cookies. You can also tell Opera whether it should send referrer information to the website. Other browsers have this same functionality, but usually it's buried several levels deep in a menu. If you've looked at Google's Chrome browser, you'll know where that browser's opening page came from. Opera's Speed Dial page. The Speed Dial page allows you to place your most commonly used websites where you can quickly and easily start them. Whenever you click the icon to open a new browser tab, Opera displays the Speed Dial page. And if the site you want is there, a single click takes you to it. Bottom line on Opera, three cats. It's the browser I want to take home, but never seem to. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it is an outstanding bit of work. But there is nothing so outrageously great that users of other browsers will be likely to start using it. I have owned two Toshiba notebook computers and one each of several other brands over the years. When it was time to think about replacing my five-year-old Toshiba Tecra S1, a lovable workhorse that has never given me any trouble, except for the time when I ran over it with a Ford Explorer and had to replace the DVD drive. I had expected to replace this Toshiba with another Toshiba, despite the fact that Toshiba and most other big-name manufacturers load up their computers with crapware. Removing this stuff is easy enough, format the drive and reinstall Windows, so that wasn't what stopped me. What did stop me was Windows Vista. I had just removed Vista from my desktop machine, and I didn't want it on a notebook computer. The big manufacturers seem to have no choice. They must install Vista. Smaller custom builders such as TCR can still buy XP licenses, so I selected a Jetbook from TCR. Time will tell if that was a wise decision. Until now, I've always stuck with name-brand notebook computers because companies such as TCR haven't been able to match the quality of machines provided by Toshiba, Dell, or even Sony. TCR sells Acer notebooks in addition to its own mobility brand of machines. Acer is a solid second-tier player in notebook computers and offers, at extra cost, a better warranty than the one TCR offers. Acer machines cost less, too. But there's less flexibility, and the Acer systems come with Vista. Been there, done that, don't want the t-shirt. The computer and power supply are made in China, but what isn't these days? My Macintosh PowerBook was also made in China. The decision was really pretty easy. A mobility notebook computer with a 2.26 gigahertz CPU, 3 gigabytes of RAM, 
and a 250 gigabyte 7200 RPM Toshiba hard drive. So I did get some Toshiba stuff in there after all. Uh, you may have some questions such as why not the fastest processor available? That's right, I did not buy the fastest one. Why three gigabytes of RAM instead of four? And why a 250 gigabyte 7200 RPM drive instead of the 120 gigabyte 5400 RPM drive that is standard for most machines? Okay, good questions. I'm glad I asked them. Why not the fastest processor available? That's easy. Cost. The basic processor that is offered with any notebook computer is a good choice, but you may want something a little faster. For $50 or so, you can upgrade the processor to a point that it's a step or two lower than the fastest possible processor. Moving to the top will eke out only a marginal performance gain, but may add hundreds of dollars to the price. So go a step or two below the fastest possible. 3 gigabytes of RAM instead of 4? Well, the computer will take 4 gigabytes of RAM, but Windows XP would see only 3. I'll probably need to upgrade this computer to Windows 7 someday, and when that happens, I will want the 4 gigabytes of RAM, because Windows 7, or if you have Windows Vista, either of those will see that much RAM. For now, though, 3 is adequate. And why did I pick a 250 gigabyte 7200 RPM drive instead of the standard 120 gigabyte 5400 RPM drive? Well, I knew that I would want to install Linux on this machine and that I would probably allocate at least 30 gigabytes to Linux. With a 120 gigabyte hard drive, that would leave less than 100 gigabytes for Windows. Whether to choose a standard 5400 RPM drive or the faster 7200 RPM drive was a little more problematic. Faster drives are also more delicate, but they're also quite a bit faster. They also run hotter. Any time spent waiting on a computer is wasted, so that decision was fairly easy. In nerdly news, this is hardly computer news, but collisions are a fact of life or death. According to Wikipedia, Louis IV of France died in 954 after falling off his horse. Irish scientist Mary Ward died on the 31st of August, 1869, when she fell out of her cousin's steam car and was run over. She is believed to have been the first motor vehicle accident victim. History was made this week with the first known space collision. A commercial communication satellite and a non-functioning Russian satellite collided this week above Siberia. NASA says the crash created a cloud of wreckage, but neither the space shuttle nor the International Space Station is threatened by the debris. The collision occurred 491 miles above Earth. About 600 pieces of debris are now in orbit. The Russian satellite is believed to be Cosmos 2251, its communications relay station, or was, that had been in space since 1993. It has been non-functional since about 1999. Everybody knew this would happen someday. Uh, and if you're looking for blame, just keep looking. There are no traffic cops in space, no real traffic laws. Nobody has the right of way. The other satellite, operated by Iridium, was one of 66 satellites that support satellite telephone operations. Iridium announced that it had lost an operational satellite. Most of the debris has gone into lower orbit, but some has gone higher. The space station flies at a higher altitude than the satellites and is not believed to be in danger from the debris. The threat, according to NASA, is very small. If you have Vista, you will get Windows 7 for free. Maybe. If you still have any questions about the viability of Windows Vista, that statement should pretty much clear them up. If you own a copy of Vista, Microsoft will allow you to upgrade to Windows 7 for free. Maybe. 
Windows 7 is scheduled for release in December. Anybody want to take a bet on whether that actually happens? According to TechArp, Microsoft will give away Windows 7 to Vista users. You can read the entire story on TechArp's website, and there's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. But the basic points are these. The program is currently called Windows 7 Upgrade Program. Previously, they called it the Windows 7 Technical Guarantee Program. It may have another name by the end of the year. End users must purchase a new PC that is pre-installed with an eligible Windows Vista operating system. And they have to do that during the program eligibility window, which has not yet been stated. The PC must have a valid certificate of authority attached to it. And if you are an enterprise customer, that would be a business that's purchased a boatload of these machines with Vista. Well, sorry, fella. Program doesn't apply to you. It used to be that Google Earth would let you fly from here to London, Paris, Beijing, Baghdad, Moscow, or Rio in seconds. If you had a robust computer with a good graphic system, that is, and a decent internet connection, then you could fly over cities and zoom down to see the Kremlin, Tiananmen Square, Trafalgar Square, or the Eiffel Tower. Now Google Earth lets you travel back in time, lets you take a look at planets other than the Earth, and you can even dive down into the oceans. Microsoft's live search may still have the lead when it comes to local views, but Google Earth has an amazing amount of flash. Fly down to an ocean or sea and you'll notice the underwater terrain. This probably rates a wow from just about anybody, even if it's not a particularly practical feature. You can also save your ventures with Google Earth to a KML file, and then if you want share them with others. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.